Welcome back to Round Guy, the podcast, as we continue our coverage of the story of Iowa's own Tommy Boland, one of the greatest guitar players ever, as we're up to episode six, as we talk to uh, Michael Drum, documentarian, personal friend uh, of Tommy Boland. Welcome back to the program, Michael. Hey, I'm, I'm so glad to be here and to be able to share an in-depth appreciation of Tommy as to how how I feel about him, and I believe there's other people who uh, you know, share share that. And I've been doing a deep dive on him here in the past year to write a new manuscript about Tommy, so that we can hopefully get a streaming video series going. You know, but Peter Jackson just did get back. You know, there's a, there's a variety of different ways that hopefully Tommy could get through a new story being written that we can attract the kind of support to get some kind of episodic put together. Um, but we'll see. But that's why I've been doing this deep dive is to bring a whole deeper awareness to the Tommy story and show that the, the elements needed in Hollywood, the brilliance, the, the, the trauma, the, the, the kind of underworld piece that the music industry was enveloped in back in those days. But there's a lot of different threads in this that kind of push the kind of buttons that Netflix it would be one of our big choices. We would love to do Netflix. And Netflix lately has had quite the reputation of trying to do justice to people who maybe got wronged or that the world didn't really get to understand who they were. And I, we believe, I believe strongly that that's the Tommy Boland story in a nutshell. He died right before he was going to be famous. And Iowa's most brilliant expert never got the chance to really become famous. And so that's what drives me 45 years later, because I knew him back then. And, and so to go back to this point in time, um, it's April of 1976. Tommy has left Deep Purple. It's like that burning in flames, like the studio in Montreux when Frank Zappa's studio burnt and they had smoke on the water. Deep Purple is now like smoking wreckage on the side of the, the lake. And everybody's going to go do a solo career or come up with some new configuration, but Deep Purple is done, quote unquote. And finally, Tommy is going to be able to do something he should have done earlier. Let's have the Tommy Boland band. And he has to put it together. He has to put the lineup together. And his album teaser had come out in October of 75, which in retrospect is held up as one of the most amazingly unique, brilliant rock albums ever. And it was a fusion of rock, jazz fusion, it had Brazilian music on it. It had just an amazing array. Every song is completely unique. And a lot of the acts back then, you know, they would get a certain groove and they would just do it over and over again. Tommy was so brilliant, he could do a record that every song was utterly different and amazing, all on its own. And the teaser album was just brilliant in that way but it also 
provided a bit of a challenge because back in those days, you know, album-oriented rock radio was starting to really come on strong. And if you got a record in heavy rotation like Led Zeppelin had, like Jimi Hendrix had, like any of the bands that wound up blowing up big out of rock in the early and mid-70s, once you got on this exploding radio format, the Rolling Stones are an example, and all of a sudden there were dozens of these stations all over the country, and this was the era of rock music on the radio, guitar-based music on the radio. And if you could get those stations to play you, it was a license to print money. And Teaser was a little bit tricky that way because those rock radio stations weren't necessarily wanting somebody to appear to be such an incredibly diverse genius. They wanted to more feel like they understood that somebody was a rock musician. And so there were these politics involved. So the teaser album wound up not really getting the kind of airplay that it could have. And then we're looking at November, December, January, February, March, April, looking at seven months later, the time would finally be able to go out on tour, quote unquote, behind the album, which is a bit of a delayed, you know, this was not <laughs> preferred strategy, but that was what they were left with. So it came time to put his first band together. And he put the most incredible band possible together. Uh, Nara to Michael Walden on drums, who wound up becoming one of the produced Whitney Houston, produced Aretha Franklin, and was one of the greatest drummers of that era. He had replaced Willie Cobham in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But he wanted to be in a rock band. And if people who are familiar with the track Marching Powder, which was one of the jazz fusion tracks on Teaser, that's Narada on drums. And then the most influential keyboard player of that era, who John Lord, the Purple got all inspired by, was Mark Stein, who in the Vanilla Fudge had made the B3 the centerpiece of that band, and the Fudge had broken up, and Mark was available to be the keyboard player, so he came on board. Reggie McBride had been in Rare Earth, and had played with Stevie Wonder, and his African-American funk bottom end great bass player was available and Norma Jean Bell who had been in Frank Zappa's group and had been in briefly in the Mavish New Orchestra when Narada was there was a great sax player a great singer and so that was the group and because of Tommy's back when he was 12 years old playing in this African American jazz club Look at the makeup of this band. You've got a black bass player, a black drummer, and a black lesbian sax player, and Tommy and Mark Stein as the first Tommy Boland band. Tommy was completely colorblind. None of this stuff meant anything to him. He just wanted to have play with the best players. And that first lineup was exactly that. So they wound up doing a number of shows, and they came to Denver in the middle of May, and I was there at that show. Tommy came and did a meet-and-greet appearance at another club in the late afternoon, and I hadn't seen him for two years. And, you know, the rumors about Deep Purple had preceded him that day, 
thought that things were crazy in Deep Purple. And I was there at this club, and he came walking in, and just walked in the door and came in. And I go, is he even going to remember me? Because I had helped him in some specific ways three, three years before up in Boulder that were important to him. I had co-signed on a sound-on-sound reel-to-reel deck so he could record demos. And this was a key point in time where he had no money and he was just bursting with songs. He was just writing songs like people turn on a faucet. He was that prolific and that gifted as a songwriter. And I know the whole format's kind of like the greatest guitar player. He was the greatest, period, at whatever he decided he wanted to do. And so I had helped him. He came to me and said, would you co-sign? My mother had co-signed on a car for me. I had credit. He didn't. He didn't have the money to buy it. So I co-signed on an installment contract from the stereo. So Howard Sound up on the hill in Boulder. And so he comes walking in uh, two and a half years later. He's been through all this incredible rock star, you know, thing going on, Deep Purple. And yeah, hearing about drugs. Is this guy even going to remember me? Is he going to be present? What the hell is going to happen? He walks in and sees me and comes to me quickly and gives me a giant bear hug. It was the Tommy Bolin I knew was still Tommy Bolin. And that, you know, that stuck with me forever. That kid from Sioux City who was appreciative and never forgot who helped him even though he had then gotten caught up in all this craziness of the music industry, but he never forgot somebody who just on a very simple, honest level had helped him out. That was the real Tommy Bowen. And that's part of why I'm doing this today, is because that's who he was. And yeah, things aren't that simple. And, you know, everybody's got different sides to their personality and different issues come up. But that's what everybody who knew him from the beginning into those early years, and then some. Well, he had the most incredible personality. He was such a sweet, loving, positive, uplifting, vulnerable person. You didn't feel like you were dealing with some egotist. He was just really, and that was a lot of what propelled him in those early years. He just disarmed everybody with how his personality was just amazing. And I really believe that was the unconditional love he had got from Bob's mother that had everything to do with that sweet side of him. And so I had never forgotten. And so that show was at Ebbets Field that night, which the company I helped his brother start years later, the Tommy Bowen Archives, we wound up putting that show out on CD, Tommy Bowen Band Live at Ebbets Field. Um, and I went to see the show. And the thing I noticed about the show was it was great, but he was really doing it from kind of a band perspective. It wasn't just about him standing up there and taking long guitar solos. He had put such a great band together. He gave, Narda had a song, Mark Stein had a song, and he let the keyboard, the sax, you know, everybody had a chance to shine and to really be a band. And that was the thing. He wanted to have it be more like a band than just Tommy Bowen standing there, you know, taking along solos. 
And the problem with all this was that his time in Deep Purple, he had been able to indulge himself to where he had started to develop what, in fact, was an addictive attachment to opioids. And that he had developed the propensity to binge out and and lose sight of the, he was finally getting what he had dreamed of his whole life and that all these other steps had been about. And back in that time in 1976, the whole idea of recovery, uh, understanding why somebody gets addictive was just not even around. And people would blame the addict. And now things have changed tremendously. And you don't blame the addict. And there's still people out there who blame Tommy for becoming an addict. That's what an addict is. You're, you're an addict. It's not, and people will, you choose to be it. No, you don't choose to be it. Circumstances equal that all of a sudden you're a prisoner. And indeed, Tommy had started to have that problem. That, and that is a problem. But now, in 2021, we don't blame the addict. We understand that there's a deeper uh, process to then try to help somebody. And somebody has to want to help. Back then, we were at the crazy peak of how rock and roll was so romantic and doing drugs was so romantic. And Tommy had developed a bit of a, he developed an attitude that this was cool, which was obviously, it wasn't, but there was no way back then to support any other perspective. His manager was a gambling addict, profound gambling addict. And, he, and he, that's what his number one deal was. He wanted to be able to go to Vegas and drop a million dollars every week. And he was promoting concerts on such a huge scale, he was able to do that. So he is at cross-purposes. And Tommy is now struggling to be totally on top of his game through no fault of his own. And then they then went to New York and played My Father's Place on Long Island, which we released as a CD. And then they do the bottom line in Manhattan. And Tommy was there in the New York area for a few extra days and New York's one of those markets where there's some heavy drugs, heavy availability of drugs. And before that bottom line show, he did too much. And Matt Weiss, the owner of Emperor Records, who's this legendary figure in the New York music business, he his company manages the Mahavish New Orchestra, is there. John McLaughlin, of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, the most incredible progressive jazz electric guitar player ever, is there. Sharon, his girlfriend for years and years and years, is there. And Tommy actually is impaired playing. And this was one of the great tragedies, uh, kind of a precursor of what was about to come. And in being impaired, it was obvious to everybody there. And Matt Weiss was old school. He, he was brilliant 
had amazing ears, but he himself was kind of old school. He had come up through the late 60s, early 70s, scene where, quite frankly, the mafia and people with mafia-type mentality and egos ruled everything. And Nat had a bit of that himself. And he had gone out on a limb for Tommy. He loved him. He thought he was just as brilliant as anybody he had met. And he blessed the idea of Teaser being diverse and not just being a rock album, but being this incredible multi-diverse type record. And when Tommy couldn't hit it out of the park that night at the bottom line, Matt felt double-crossed in a way that mafia people feel double-crossed. And he went from loving him to dropping him from the label the next day. And Emperor was through Atlantic Records, which, of course, Ahmed Erdogan was the chairman of. And um, all of a sudden, he didn't have a record deal anymore. And Narada, who's the most incredible drummer possible, and he had become, he was a follower of Sri Chimnoy, who was one of the Eastern spirituality leaders of that era that was very big in the music industry. And John McLaughlin and he, that's from Vishnu, that was John's spiritual name. Where Narada is like Walden's spiritual name. They both had the same spiritual teacher. And part of that was you didn't do drugs, you didn't drink, but you got in touch with your own spiritual essence. And Narada didn't feel that he could continue to stay in the band. And so he quit. And, and, and that was the end of the short little club tour. And, that, and it's like disarray. Meanwhile, Barry had, had these investors investing in Tommy. And the Deep Purple money had stopped. And he's starting to worry, you know, what the hell's going on here? And he has no clue about how to look at this in any way other than him being scared himself. So, um, but, okay, we need to pick up the ball here. And um, so he was able to get a hold of Columbia Records, which at that point had become the preeminent big label at that time it was really made huge inroads in the rock world Bruce Springsteen was blowing up they had a lot of cachet going and he was able to get Tommy a new record deal within uh, a week and they signed him and he was given marching orders you need to put together a mainstream rock album without jazz, without fusion. We can't have confusion anymore here. You're, you know, we're going to find you. But you got to deliver an album that we can go get on the radio. And you've got to trim, trim back the jazz part and just give us a mainstream rock album. And so Tommy had met Dennis Mackay at Trident Studios in London back in 1975 when he was almost done with Teaser but 
it had been done in such a way that where there were like 10 guitar tracks on these multi-track tapes and Tommy was like, couldn't figure out how is he going to sort through all this and mix it properly. He took the tapes to Trident, who were the most famous studio in London. All the David Bowie albums, all the Elton John albums, huge, and the best engineers in the world. Ken Scott was there. It was just a phenomenal studio. So they got wind of, let's take the multi-tracks to Trident. And he went over there, and Dennis, who was their lead chief engineer, got assigned to sit with Tommy to sort through these tracks so they could try to get the record to where it was, um, you know, could be finished where Tommy could be excited. So... Uh, Dennis started doing some initial mixing of things, and Tommy's mind was blown. He had found his perfect engineering partner, and they then went back to New York to record Marching Powder and People People. They needed the last two tracks recorded. They were able to, Dennis, with Dennis helping produce those, they were able to mix those and record those like instantly. So when Columbia gave the marching orders about, okay, we need a mainstream rock album, Tommy picked Dennis, to, to, who was being elevated from engineer to co-producer with Tommy. And so it was going to be Tommy and Dennis. But Tommy already was ready to be the producer of a more mainstream rock album. And he never told Dennis that, okay, this is supposed to be a mainstream rock album. He just knew what he wanted to do. He knew he was going to do that and private eyes is exactly that and they did all the tracking the basic tracks in five days which is the most ridiculously short period of time imaginable and bottom line was that tommy by that point had turned into an incredible producer and even though he had just started developing this addictive side, when the heat was on and they had to go in the studio, he was able to deliver the record Columbia Records wanted him to deliver, which, with the test of time, is just a brilliant, brilliant mainstream rock album. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It still has Tommy's personality all the way through it. And it worked. And the Columbia Records was able to get it on the radio that fall as Tommy went back out on tour. There's a show they did in Detroit that got recorded from the audience. You can hear the crowd going wild. Tommy was had problems. He had issues. But when the heat was on, he was a brilliant producer. Dennis said he always sang on key, on pitch. No vocal took more than two or three takes. Same with all the guitars on there. That was the most amazingly quickly recorded record for as important as it was that I'm even aware of. And that, again, in July, August of that year, Tommy was able to just hit it out of the park um, with putting that record together to where he could finally get the big machine, the big record company machine, to put him at the top of the list. That his music could now be on dozens and dozens of radio stations all over the country. And finally, Tommy Bowen 
would not have to be in any other band ever again. And there's still people that say, oh, well, will you join this group, that group? He was done. And Private Eyes was proof. Tommy Boland was now Tommy Boland. And he didn't have to do anything but his music, his way. And when they said, we need a record that is going to work in this context, he delivered it. And Dennis was just stunned. But then having these interviews with him in the past month, he felt he had found his perfect partner in being able to create amazing music. And Dennis wound up recording many of the greatest jazz albums, many great rock albums. Long career. Long career. And 45 years later, he still says the most amazing person he ever got to work with was the only person he felt was a true partner for him was Tommy. And that nobody ever passed Tommy in terms of the impression that made on Dennis McKay. And that he brought his skill honed at the hippest recording studio in London to be Tommy's recording arts partner. Not live guitar player, but there's a whole different thing, recording arts. And how do you use that to, to propel your career? And that summer, that's what happened. And Tommy was able to do that with Dennis. And to this day, 45 years later, Dennis, in focusing on this, could almost start crying. That Tommy, before the end of the year, had passed away. That, to me, is the ultimate exclamation point about the brilliance of Tommy Bowen. Well, we've been talking to Michael Drum, uh, of uh, documentarian, friend of uh, Tommy Bowen's, uh, really pouring his heart out there for you. Uh, this was episode six. I still don't feel like we got it all told, but... Uh, I think we, we we might have another episode in us sometime, but uh, yeah. thanks for to today. You, I think we I think we're, we I think we may be at the natural ending point. So, <laughs> well, it sure was a, I, sure was a great story, and uh, thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it so much, man. Appreciate right. it. Love you, Tommy.